Your front of your bulletin says, Dave, I'm not Dave. Uh, sometimes I wish I were, no. Um, and, uh, but uh, we're going to be uh, doing this message this morning uh, together, so uh, hold tight. Dave will be here soon. Um, so before I begin, uh, let, me, let me start us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we count your word as true. We count it as divine, and we count all parts of it as instructive, uh, whether we like them or not. Uh, please let us hear what your word has us uh, as we contemplate and think about and the implication of what you designed uh, for man, for woman, and for marriage. We pray all this and ask that you would open our hearts to it and let us apply it to our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a way to look at scripture, to look at you know, significant teachings, significant topics uh, in scripture using an approach or a, a uh, just a, it's maybe too big to call it a technique, um, but to think about first mentions. And first mentions is to look at the first time a topic is introduced in scripture and to count that as the most significant or the most foundational. I shouldn't say significant because that would diminish the significance of everything else uh, in the scripture said about the topic, but that it lays a foundation and it, and it lays the core of, um, you know, of the rest of teaching. Um, about a given topic. There's pros and cons to applying and, and, uh, and thinking about and, and strictly applying uh, first-mentioned technique, but I think there is some significance to it, and that's why today, uh, when, we talk about script, uh, when we talk about marriage, we're going to the first mentions of it um, you know, found in Genesis. And if you want to, I, I don't have specific like line-by-line line, uh, scripture uh, that we'll go through, but if you want to roughly follow along, I'm going to be generally um, in Genesis, a bit in chapter 1, a bit in chapter 2. Okay. And so when we look at the foundations or the first mention of marriage, the first thing that happens and the first thing that we see is in Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 27, and in order to have a marriage relationship, you have to have a man and a woman. So that's where we look first uh, about the creation of marriage. And so after making all of the creation, all of, the, all of creation, all of the animals, all of the creatures of the earth, and I have a little rant, they didn't create themselves through evolution, God created them. Um, after all of that, uh, God makes man. And this is what he says before he makes man. In Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created, created him male and female, he created them. So first part I want to key in on is make man in our image. And I think there are significant things 
about the image of God, about the image. And, and when we think about Genesis, a lot of times we think about only God. But we have to remember that Jesus was there at creation. Holy Spirit was there at creation. And sometimes we kind of fall into this, oh, Jesus came on the scene you know, later on. No, they were all present. And it's sometimes kind of interesting to say, Jesus created man. The Holy Spirit created man. Of course, in Genesis, it is God the creator is emphasized. And that's generally the person of God that we associate with creation. But it says, make man in our image. And so there are multiple of the image of God. There's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it's not three and a free-for-all amongst them. There is order. There are roles that get played by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, but yet, they have one meaning, one purpose, one direction, all for the glory of God, yet they have different roles. See, the Trinity is three in one. Marriage, our human capacity thinks, is two in one, but that's absence, the presence of the Trinity. So marriage, actually, when you think about it, is actually three in one also. And when, it, when I think, and I tend to, to gravitate to when God said, make man in our, make, make man in our image, it was with that three of Trinity and three of human relationship and marriage in mind. And when I say that in Trinity there's role, there are roles, in marriage there are roles. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And you can see clearly laid out, there are roles. It's not a free-for-all. Now, I want to come back to headship in a little bit, so hold on that. Within roles, we see this in, in Trinity, there is yielding. Jesus yields and submits to all things that are the will of the Father. We see this abundantly in the Gospels. And the Holy Spirit submits to both Jesus and God the Father. Now, it's not that, and so we need to learn from this, that there is submission in roles. Okay, now, it's not that the husband never submits to the wife. It's not that the wife never loves the husband because it says the, the, the husband's service to the wife is that of love. And it's not that the opposite is never true, but it's a defining characteristic. The Trinity, what holds it together is love. The Father loves the Son. The Son respectfully and lovingly submits to the Father. The Father does not oppress the Son and make him submit. He loves the Son. And the Holy Spirit loves and submits to both. Again, I'll come to this uh, point about headship and submission. But I'm in this area of creation 
And the man isn't created yet. All that's been said is let us create him in our image. That's all that's been said. Now, when we get to 127 and we see it again in chapter 2, male and female, he created them in Genesis 127. Okay, I'll say it again. Man and woman are separate. They have roles. This could have easily have been stated as... Uh, let me go back to 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Humans, he created them. He didn't say that. He said man and woman, male and female, he created them. I don't think this is by mistake. I don't think anything in scripture is by mistake. He could have used any other kind of phraseology or word right, that would eliminate or confuse the differences or that there are differences between man and woman. He didn't. He specifically called out in the creation of all things, in the anticipation of the creation of man, that man and woman are separate. They're different. And there must be reason for the differences. Again, I don't think there's anything in scripture that's there by mistake or just by chance. I think it's all there for a reason, and I think it all has purpose. And so we need to anticipate and think about the intention of man and woman is for a relationship, and their roles must be different. The fact that these are different, that, that man and woman are different, the fact that that implies that there are roles, there are you know, differences in there, this is absolutely foundational. So when I was talking about first mentions and looking at the first time things are called out in scripture, I want to just put a big block here and say this, having man and woman separate, distinct, created separately, different roles, foundational. <laughs> so I want to pause here for a minute and recall Dave's message from last week. A main point of his message was remembering that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that we would do well to count all of scripture as chock full of marriage wisdom. We're also called to be set apart. In 1 John 4, 4, 5, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong in the, to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to, to them. Also in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, therefore come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. Satan attacks foundations. Dave reminded us that our conflict is not with flesh and blood. I think a, a verse that is well known. For we, are, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All you have to do is turn on the television, 
read the news, be half awake to our crumbling social landscape to know that the distinction between man and woman that the God of the universe created, the creator of all things set forth in the beginning, that this is under attack. And when we have sympathy to this crumbling social landscape, we're seeking the favor of man, and we are not seeking wisdom by the fear of the Lord. I don't know. I don't know if God weeps or rages. For me, it's both. It is so, so sad what goes on. It is so sad our sympathies for this world, and it will be to our own destruction. In chapter 2, this is a little interesting. This is a little, um, I didn't, I didn't, this didn't jump out to me for a long time. Um, after, putting God, after putting Adam in the Garden of Eden and calling out the tree of life to, you know, to man and stuff, God made, makes an observation. See, up until now, everything that God created, when God made an observation about his creation, it was good or very good. Now, men, the first time anything is ever called out in creation as not good is Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's the first time anything is ever called out as not good. Now, the way we should take this is man without a companion, without a helper fit for him, is incomplete. It is not a superiority thing. I want to call out something else that was a bit, uh, it, it just, it made, you know, when I, when I saw it and finally recognized it, it was kind of like, like, huh? Kind of thing. Um, this is the first human-to-human -human relationship. The, the, the relationship of marriage, the institution of marriage. God could have created any possible human relationship, but he created the institution, the relationship of marriage before any other relationship between humans. And I think this then is why when he was anticipating creation of man, and humankind, when he said man and male and female, he created them, is was was this it was in anticipation. Now, let me be clear here. What God didn't do was say, "It is not good that man should may it be. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, and then create another man." He did not do that. I'm not being judgmental. I'm not being political. I'm not being unsympathetic. I'm just calling out what our creator did and what he 
didn't do. And again, I don't know if he's weeping or raging. So God says it is not good for man to be alone. Now here's a kind of a, a funny thing, okay? We have the very first thing in all of creation. We have the sun, the moon, the stars, the entirety of the universe. We have the sky, the waters, all the grasses of the field, all the trees of the forest. We have rushing rivers, the expanse and deep of the oceans, down to the inner workings of the fabric of all life. God recognizes that there is one thing called out as not good. Everything is perfect, not just to you and I. This is perfect to God. Everything else is perfect, but this is not God. And what does he do next? We're going to go name all the creatures. <laughs> it's just weird, right? That's the next thing he does after he says, this is not good. He doesn't just kind of, okay, I'm going to resolve what's not good. He says, hey, Adam, come on over here. We're going to name all the creatures. <laughs> okay. And this couldn't have been kind of a quick task, right? Because there's, you know, I can't imagine that the names came quickly. You know, maybe, like, maybe the simple ones, right? Or what I think of as simple. Maybe lion was easy or ant was easy, right? But who comes up with, like, salamander? Sorry. I mean, this couldn't have been easy. It's not something that happened in an instant. Now, kidding aside, perhaps God intentionally had Adam go through this exercise as the first version of which of these is not like the other. So that Adam would recognize that he does not have a mate. And maybe this was a way for God to start to introduce to Adam that he needed a companion. It wasn't just God's observation that he needed a companion, but maybe this was God's way of, of helping Adam recognize it himself. And also perhaps it was a way for God to introduce or to reinforce to Adam that he is, I am God, you are not, and that my relationships and my needs and my purposes are our, well, our purposes are the same, but our needs are different. Your needs are different than, my, than mine. God's needs are different than man's. I don't think God has needs. He has desires. So then we finally come to man creating woman in Genesis 2.22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, Here's where we have to be very, very careful that helper, I will create a helper fit for him, does not imply superiority. We also have to be very, very careful not to extrapolate that while Adam was made first and from the dust and Eve was made from Adam's rib, that there is no superiority. Man was incomplete and then was made complete with the creation of Eve. And it's when, when we look at the words themselves, when it says God made woman to be a helper suitable for him, or for, suitable for the man, it's literally kind of corresponding to, right? So, so in, 
something is incomplete, right? And we're gonna create something and put something that corresponds to that incompleteness. God designed it so that man needs the woman and the woman needs the man. Both are equal, and ha but yet have distinct roles to fill. And then in the last part of this here, in Genesis 2.24, I want to point out something that strikes me a bit odd about its placement in Scripture. You know, kind of like that when the naming of the creatures comes up. And I think it's just odd because it's my own kind of constrained human understanding. I'm sure there's meaning to it. But in 2.24, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The reason I think this is a little odd, its placement in scripture, is it's talking about leaving a father and mother, and there are no fathers and mothers yet. Cain is the first human to have a father or mother, human father or mother uh, relationship. Cain's not on the scene. So we're talking about fathers and mothers. The first time we talk about fathers and mothers, and fathers and mothers don't exist, the first thing that says about fathers and mothers is you will leave them. Now, I think the reasons for this are twofold. First off, the relationship between child and parent can be very strong. Many times it's not, but it can be. And I think perhaps God is saying that while this is the first relationship known to most humans, and, and sidebar, that this relationship between child and parent, they're purposely, um, there are some that have that as a natural part of birth, but there are some children that that awareness and that introduction to who their parents are is saved for a different person, a different couple than their birth parents. But that this relationship uh, between child and parent can be very strong, but the relationship that defines you before God, before Christ, is the one that's the relationship with your spouse. And I think this is why we think it might be odd that when God is first introducing mothers and fathers and that the first thing that says about mothers and fathers is you will leave them is because this relationship of cleaving to your spouse is the one that God sees. It's not that he doesn't see your parent-child relationship, but this is the designed purpose. And this is the first human relationship that he creates is between man and woman in, in, uh, you know, in marriage. And that, yes, there are very, very, there can be very strong bonds between child and parent, and those are massively important, but, the intention is that you leave that relationship and cleave to your spouse. So if your notes look anything like my daughter's sitting next to me, you have a whole bunch crammed up here and then a key truth. You can write the key truth, which is behind me. Um, which is this, that God created man and wife as first and central to all human-to-human -human relationships. 
There was a kid in my youth group named John, not his real name, and he called me um, in a panic. And he said, Dave, I really need to meet with you. And I dropped what I was doing. I went and met with him. And as we sat and met, he dropped this bomb on me. He said, my parents are splitting up. John had just graduated high school. He was launching into adulthood. And his mom and dad were both very hard workers. And they had allowed parenting to turn them into co-workers who shared the same address but stopped being friends. And when their job was done, so was their marriage. Probably many of you in this room know this storyline, that as soon as the last child leaves the house, the marriage dissolves. And I bring it up because of this. What happened somewhere along the line with John's parents was that first mention, husband and wife, central relationship, that's their job. Their job is to nurture their, their marriage. And out of that flows other kinds of things, right? Employer, servant role at church, parent. And when that job shifts to my job, my primary job is raising children, what happens is once they leave the home, the marriage disintegrates because there's been no nurturing of the relationship. What I want to do is I want to take this middle section and get really practical for us. And by the way, let me say this at the very start. I am so proud of our church for this reason. We have many people in this room who are single. Some of you are single and you're aspiring to marriage. I hope you're listening with very attentive ears. Some of you are parents trying to think, how do I teach my kids about love and sex and marriage and dating and all this stuff in this sort of swirly culture that we have? Listen carefully. Take amazing notes during this. Go and do your own research out, out of this. Let this just be a springboard. Some of you find yourself single because you're widowed. And some of you find yourself single because God may be gifting you with the gift of singleness. Read it in the Bible. It is a gift. Some of you find yourself single and you have a humble, repentant heart before the Lord, and God's done a tremendous work of redemption, and you would say, I own it. I'm single because my sin led me to my singleness. Some of you might be in this room today, and you feel your marriage is so far gone, you're secretly harboring the thought, I wish I was single. And some of you have amazing friendships, an amazing season of marriage right now. I want you to know that the heart of people standing in front of you as your shepherds of this church is to prayerfully say, God, would you allow us as a church body reflect the mystery of Christ in the church? Would you allow us to teach on this boldly, even though we'll leave some people behind because we're talking about friendship within a marriage, and there's all kinds of things to grab onto if you're not married, by the way, if you're listening carefully. And so thank you for showing up. Thank you for being here. I recognize that this six weeks would be easy to sort of check out if you were single, easy to check out if you were frustrated in your marriage. So I'm thankful that you're here. And I just want to say that at the, at the start of, of this. Jesus, by word and deed, taught us that relationships are the most important thing. They're the most important thing because they're the thing that lasts the longest. It's a key part of this key truth is that central human-to-human -human relationship is husband and wife. 
First and foremost, of course, is son or daughter of the Most High King. It's true that married people aren't the only ones who struggle with friendship. People that I have sat with as they are on their deathbed always talk about people, always talk about relationships, regrets or joys. What they want around them is not their stuff. They don't want their office furniture. They don't want their awards and their achievements. You know what they want? They want loved ones. And if they didn't invest their life well, they don't have a lot of loved ones around them and they mourn for the fact that they don't have loved ones that would even come to them when they're dying. Relationships are central. So here's the curious thing. I think there aren't deeper friendships because people don't devote the required time to build and nurture and sustain deep friendships. They lose the priority, don't they? There will always be lesser things to distract us from friendships. This is true inside and outside of marriage. So because of this, guard this, prioritize this. I love sitting with couples in premarriage counseling or on their wedding day. And I challenge them. I say, are you going to receive this woman as your long prayer? I've been with you, bro. You prayed for this woman for a long time. You believed it wasn't good that, God, that, that you would be alone. And God has gifted you with a spouse. Do you receive this woman as your spouse, as your friend, as your provision from God? Yes, I do. Man, that's what it's like on your wedding day. You know what I'm really asking? I'm really asking five years in. I'm asking 15 years in. I'm asking 30 years in. Are you going to keep receiving this woman as God's provision to you, God's gift to you? At the base of our little title site, it says, Responding I do to holy matrimony. Not just saying the words I do, responding. And friends, this is a daily choice that we make in marriage. Isn't it true that few things that are great in life just happen? It just doesn't work that way. So it is with friendship. Friendship is at the core of every godly marriage. Here's your, um, here's your key verse that I would challenge you to, to memorize and be thinking on. The first part of it we're going to take this week. The second part, next week. The first part is the idea that that man's going to leave his parents and cleave or adhere or hold fast to his wife. Next week is on being one, intimacy, and they'll become one flesh, God's design for sex and marriage. Leaving and cleaving means at least the following. It means that as you get married, you are leaving behind the most important relationships that had been there up to that point. A truth that I've seen is that um, as this happens, sometimes people try to live functionally still as a bachelor or bachelorette. That is, they get married and continue their life fairly similar to how they did before they were married. The older you get married, oftentimes the more challenging this is because you have these set patterns. And poker night's just on Tuesday night. So you go to poker night with the dudes. And people get married and they don't think that maybe that's going to change. Friends, hear me. That's going to change. Your most important relationship 
early on is your parents, your nuclear family. However good or bad or together that is, that's what defines you, that's what's been influencing you, that's what God's been using to shape you up to this point. You are leaving your parents. Here's what that means. Leaving your parents means you're no longer emotionally, physically, or financially dependent on your folks. A groom was recently married and he uh, was on the phone with his wife and she said, are you coming home for dinner? You know, come home for lunch? She said, yeah, I am. He leaves work and he goes home. Well, he'd been going home to mom to make his lunch at lunchtime most of his life. So guess where he went? He went home to mom. And the wife was sitting around going, uh, what's the deal? <laughs> he didn't really get the picture that he had a new home. Saying I do as a covenant marriage forms a new home. This is that foundational thing that Kel was talking about. And so he quickly corrected that and said, oh yeah, it's just a change of thinking. You can sort of sympathize with the guy of going, yeah, that's what it was. But that's what it means to leave. When we were young married, in fact, we just took our kids. We were early to an appointment and we drove our kids off Bascom Avenue at the Casa de Rosa Apartments. And we showed our kids our very first apartment. And that was the location that God put a few things in our marriage that set a trajectory of trust for him like nothing else. I was a junior high pastor at a large church. We didn't have a lot. It was hard to live in the Silicon Valley then as it is now. And we were not making it. And it was not because of frivolous spending. I can, I can promise you that. And we had my parents that lived about 10 minutes one direction. We had my wife's parents who lived about 10 minutes the other direction. Do you know what they would have done if we had said, hey, we're having a little bit of trouble meeting rent this, this, this month. Do you guys mind just kicking in and helping us out? You know what they would have said? I think they would have said yes. They love us dearly, and I think they would have helped out. Neither of them were struggling financially. And I remember as a young couple, we said, God, if you formed this new household, which we believe that you did, would you please provide for us? Would you please provide for us? The easiest thing in the world would be to go and put our trust back in our parents. And you know what? God did a couple of things in those early years um, that as I look back on it, it just set this huge trajectory of God saying this, I've got you. I did create it. You were in my will stepping into this. I've got this. This leaving part of the command is as important as the hold fast or cleave to your wife part of the command. Many of the frustrations, many of the arguments in your married life to come, if you're not married or currently, center around some of these ideas. How about holiday times? Holiday times stressful for anyone? You know what part of that is? Maybe not properly leaving. Spouses, you ever feel in between the in-laws and your spouse? That's because there's maybe a, a, a leaving issue. Let me move on. Man, Kel, it's hard to preach together. Because I, yeah, I'll keep going. Uh, it means this. It means uh, leaving and cleaving means at least this, that you will save your best and most for your spouse. You know what the opposite is? It's being energized and intentional with your coworkers, with your job, or with your kids, and then serving up leftovers to your spouse day after day after day. What kind of friend is that? No one wants that from their friends especially in this key human relationship. Leaving and cleaving also means this. Catch this. You will be open 
about every relationship you have, and you will give power to your spouse to speak into the relationships that you have, male or female. As a longtime youth pastor, I gave my wife permission. I was working with lots of young ladies. God spared me from ever finding attractive young people. That's a sin that some people struggle with. But I led a team of many, many college-aged guys and gals. I spent huge amounts of time away with them. Regularly, I came to Becky and I proactively said, Becky, is there anyone, she has the spiritual gift of discernment, is there anyone you feel the slightest bit weird about me being around? You have the power to speak into that. I don't want to crash and burn like so many have in the sexual realm. Would you watch out for any of that? Men and women are apart as they go to jobs, as they go to do things, as they work on parent meetings together, whatever it is. Guard what you have. We're going to talk about intimacy next week and the power of that. Remembering that... that the base of marriage is a really good friendship, opens up God's counsel to you in some crazy big ways. Write these things down about where to mine for friendship gold in the Bible. I'm going to give you three sort of categories. By the way, at the very start of this, remember last week I forbade you from elbowing your spouse? If you're feeling tempted, separate. Put a, put a, get yourself out of elbow room. Here's the other thing I want you to do. As we talk about friendship in marriage... Work on your relationship from your end of the equation, not your spouse's. So again, hear this. God, how can I be the best friend possible despite my husband or wife who may be done, who may be checked out, who may be incapacitated, who may be not be doing that great in, in return right now? I have children, and sometimes I give them a chore that should last about three minutes. And it turns into a 30-minute extravaganza of amazing relational learning opportunities. <laughs> Much to my chagrin. Here's what happens. I give them a three-minute chore, and it turns into 30 minutes because they're so concerned with how fair it is according to their vantage point of the other siblings. They suddenly become deeply interested in the work ethic of their siblings, Forgetting the fact that they may be several years older than said sibling. They also might just be annoyed at the little song being hummed by the other sibling who's happily doing their job. I mean, this could, I could go, I have a long list of things that could happen hypothetically. <laughs> you know what it gets me thinking? It gets me thinking this. How must God hear us in our marriage? That we gripe to him. God, my spouse this. God, remember me. Woe is me. God, just change my spouse. When all along, God's given us and equipped us for a three-minute chore that if we would just walk in the path he has for us, it would change things completely. So here we go. Start digging here. By the way, both of these uh, Proverbs, Proverbs is the first one. You're going to write three things down. Start digging in the Proverbs for marital gold, for friendship gold. Both of these proverbs I'm going to bring up have to do with talking. Uh, sometimes young couples are very idealistic and they say, you know, we need to carve out 
retreats every month and get away and we need to have date night every other night and all these things. I said, that's all great. That's fine and dandy. But most of your life, especially once kids comes along, is you doing chores together. And if you don't do chores together and you wait for date night, you won't talk very much. You just won't. So get together and do chores. This is an old couple that's still together. It's actually a stock photo. But, um, <laughs> but you know why they're together? They're together because they're taking time to do chores with each other. And you'll find that doing this sustains and nurtures friendship and marriage um, far better than just waiting for date night or retreats, although I think those things are important. One of the things friends do and married partners need to do is this. They need to have hard conversations. So here's what I would say. Spouses, open your mouth. Friends have hard conversations. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Here's a little tip for you. If you want to come meet with the pastor and say, Dave, I want to meet with you, and you tell me something about your spouse, the very first thing I will do is say, have you told him or her this yet? Because if you're talking to me and not talking to them, you're doing this all wrong. Yeah, but he doesn't really listen to me. Try him. Walk in God's path and have a hard adult conversation. Conflict avoidance means crumbling marriage eventually. So go and talk to the one it directly involves. Act like an adult. This goes true in all of friendships and relationships. But that's the first thing I will say to you. Here's the second thing. Friends don't gossip. So married people, shut your mouth. There's a time to open your mouth. Use it. There's a time to close your mouth. Do it. Proverbs 16.28 says this. A dishonest man spreads strife. A whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 17. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You know, we discovered early on as a young married couple... There's all kinds of husband bashing that goes on in little wife circles. And there's all kinds of like locker room talk and wife bashing that goes on with guys. We found that disgusting. We were repulsed by that. The spirit of Christ in us said, no. And early on in our marriage, we looked at each other and we said this. If you ever see me across the room at a dinner party, know this. I will not be talking bad about you. I cannot tell you, 25 years in, how amazing it is to have a wife like Becky that has honored that. Here's what I know about my wife, because I've seen it time and time again. If you come try to gossip with my wife, she will shut you down in the name of Christ. If you are an accomplice to a bank robber and you drive the get-to and get-away car, are you guilty of bank robbery? Of course you are. If you sit there and receive the latest juicy gossip, if you let a spouse go on ranting to you about their spouse when they really should be talking to the Lord first and most, and then the spouse, you know what you are? You're the drive-to and getaway car for the, for the crime. Shut it down. It's no fun to gossip to people who don't want you to gossip and call you out in your sin. You know what happens? No one comes to you with the juicy gossip anymore. I, I don't get why there's... Gossip. I do, because it's called sin nature. But married people, please, don't participate in this. I'm going to move on. Look at the one another's in Scripture. 
I just put a couple of them up here. But if you take the one another's and you apply them first and most to your own household, which is scriptural, it's a game changer. It's a friendship builder. Be at peace with one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Carry one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be kind and compassionate for Pete's sake with one another. Do you know how hurtful it is as a spouse? If I were to be in this public role and I was kind and compassionate, patient and forgiving, long-suffering and carrying everyone else's burdens in the church, but I didn't do that with my own spouse, it's hurtful for your spouse too. If God's tugging at you right here, repent. Say, God, I've overlooked relationship gold in the scriptures because I've been seeking to apply it at work, at school, with others, and not in my own home. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. And in Ephesians 5, Paul explicitly points that to marriage, saying no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I just spent time at a cabin where I had taken several seniors on seniors trips up to Yosemite. And I was sitting on the very deck doing my morning devotions and I had a memory of a guy who was with me at the time. His wife was pregnant with their first child and she was deathly sick to certain smells. Some of you ladies have been there. One of the smells she could not stand was coffee. This created a problem. You say, I enjoy coffee. I was with a bunch of rambunctious seniors. I needed coffee. So here's what we did. We took the coffee pot and we pulled it outside of the house. We made our coffee every morning out on the deck. And as I sat out there this morning pondering this moment here with you this weekend, I thought, wow, there's an act of love and service from a, from a relatively new husband serving his wife and just nourishing and cherishing her so she didn't have to put up with the smell of coffee. Very mild inconvenience. I'll tell you what it looks like from this end years and years and years later. It looks like pure gold. I just love that. I love seeing that example of this husband. Learn and remember your spouse's likes and dislikes and employ these regularly without being asked. Here's a second key part to this. If your spouse is trying to offer you a gift of your likes and dislikes, and is fumbling, bumbling, stuttering along, receive it graciously. Isn't it so easy to say, you remembered that I like roses, but remember it's not red, it's pink. A little bit off. I'll tell you right now, that's smarts, and it shuts a person down from saying, you know what, I tried. I try and I try and I try, I can't really please. So gift giving and gift receiving it's a huge part of it. Here's the third one is the Gospels. Jesus is the best friend. So learn from him. There is a, there is a wealth of relational gold when you just look at the, inter, the interactions of Jesus with different kinds of people. And just let your mind kind of think of how differently he interacted with different kinds of people. Don't just look at his commands and warnings or his interactions, but also his commands and warnings. John 13, 34 says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I can promise you this. Your spouse will thank you years from now if you 
Hold to this. You spend alone time with Jesus, with your Bible open, that will transform your friendship. No matter how good it is right now, it will transform your friendship within marriage. Utterly transform it. You'll never grow proud because you can't out-love or out-friend Jesus. How many marriages sort of stall out because the guy looks around and goes, I'm doing way more than any of my buddies. And so he just kind of coasts for a while. Women, you can do that too, I'm sure. Here's another thing that spending alone time with Jesus does. You'll never grow self-sufficient because to love like Jesus is an impossible task. That's why he left his spirit with us. So he not only models it for us, he actually empowers us. And as we keep in step with the spirit, we walk the marriage path that God has for us. I've been talking to Becky a lot about this series, and really you're going to get a lot of her thoughts in this as well. I'm going to turn this back over to Kel for a key practice, but let me just give you this. We made a quick list of what friends in marriage do. Friends in marriage develop common interests together. Friends in marriage are encouraging. Friends in marriage help each other, even if it's not typically your chore. This is one of the ways we wash each other's feet, is that if it's their chore to do such and such, go join them. Man, there's no gift like that. Friends in marriage finds joy in what brings their spouse joy. If you do that as an act of obedience, at some point it actually turns into a real joy for you as well. Friends in marriage care about what concerns your spouse. Some of you don't feel loving anymore. You don't feel like investing in your relationships. Like one of the biggest problems that occurs in marriage is when one person feels alone in the marriage. No longer are they together. If one person feels they're the only one carrying the emotional weight, the only one working towards making uh, the, the relationship work, the only one making money uh, and trying to get the finances to go, the only one parenting, uh, the only one cleaning or caring for what's going on around the home, there begins to be frustration. If you start with worship and review that it's out of reverence for Christ we submit to one another. It's an act of worship, catch this, to fulfill your duty, whether your spouse is or not. Maybe it's time to learn something new together. Maybe instead of trying to go part way and part way, you say, you know what, let's, let's get together on something. We're going to spend a whole week on being missional in marriage. So listen carefully for that. Some of you need to focus on friendship rather than romance. Guess what? Your married partner may not be there yet. And so to open yourself up and try to re-romance your wife or husband, begin to build towards friendship. I talked about resources to help. So overwhelmingly the Bible that I had to put a massive Bible first. That's where we've been, okay? Let me give you two more that you can jot down if you would like. Both of these particularly highlight friendship and marriage. Mark Driscoll wrote Real Marriage. There's a whole chapter on that. I'm three quarters of the way through this book, A Lifelong Love, and he brings up this point. No one is interesting enough to hold the interest and attention for someone more than a few years, much less a few decades. So in the early years of infatuation and young love and all that, you're pretty stinking interesting. But it's hard to hold that for decade after decade after decade. You need something more to your marriage. And he talks about this, um, you know, this 
magnificent obsession to, to, to bring honor and glory to God. If you're just starting out, I would just say this. Focus on being a really good friend. You want to start well in marriage? Focus on being a good friend. Don't focus on dating. Don't focus on other things. Focus on being a really good friend. It's pretty powerful to look around this room, and I want you young people to hear me clearly on this. If you're dating and contemplating marriage, if you're engaged, if you're a young couple who's already married, take someone out, and it could be cheap. I get it that you don't have money to even take them to Taco Bell for a, for a taco. I've got a coupon. You can come to me. They don't want Taco Bell. They don't want coffee. They don't want your money. They would, they would be honored to say, hey, could you meet us at a park? Can we take a walk? I'll take you out for a walk. That's free. And can I just pick your brain about what, what makes your marriage work? How come you guys are still together? How have you done it raising children? And, and I, I see this in your relationship, and we want that. Can you just talk to us? Man, it would feel so honoring to these couples. We have some amazing couples around here. There's some amazing friendships that sit in this room week after week. Kel, come on up. And uh, he's going to leave us a key practice. I'm going to give you a warning right now. We're going to go late this morning in church. (laughs) I wish I'd been more aware of how instructive Scripture is about marriage and that I'd been more committed to it and disciplined about applying it. Um, I think I could have been a better husband. But it's wrong of me to think after you know, however many years that you know, given my shortfallings, you know, failings, things like that, that it's unrecoverable. <clears throat> and if I take a posture that my marriage is done and set in its ways and I've fallen short and I've had past failures, that there's no redemption. That is either massively prideful or massively or just plain ignorant. Either way, it makes Jesus small. If I take a posture, if I take this posture, right, that, that, that a relationship is unrecoverable, what I'm stating is that while I have a creator who is the creator of all things, I have a savior who can save anyone, and I have a redeemer who can justify a thief on a cross. If I take a posture that my relationship and my and this mar- marriage relationship, my relationship with my wife, is beyond this reach, are you kidding? Like, who do I think I am? And no matter how good or bad, how fulfilling or how empty a relationship is, it is never beyond the reach of Jesus. I'm grateful that just the other day, Kirsten said, Kel, sometimes you make me really mad. I love you. And I'm grateful that Jesus' mercies are new every day. 
with this, I know that I'm a daily and hourly, a moment by moment work in progress. See, when we're disobedient to this teaching, we're disobedient to God, and it immediately affects our human relationships. The first sin was disobedience. And the immediate thing that Adam did was blame his wife. The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. It's your fault. See, when I'm disobedient to God's design for marriage, I hurt Kirsten and I sin against God. The reaction to my sinfulness can be one of two things. Repentance or pride. And I consistently have to ask forgiveness for the habit of pride being a first response. But this is not out of the reach of Jesus. One practice that has just been monumental in our, prayer, in our marriage has been the practice of prayer. To pray out loud together before Jesus. There's a sweetness that comes when you hear your spouse praying for you. And there's power in knowing that your marriage is held together by the Creator. There's also an ease that comes that Jesus makes available to us through, through repentance. When I fall short and I fail, I'm ashamed to say that sometimes I have to swallow my pride and ask Jesus for forgiveness. But for Kirsten to hear me say that and ask my Savior for forgiveness and I repent, that also communicates to her when she hears that, that I'm acknowledging my hurtfulness to her. It doesn't replace seeking her forgiveness, but it communicates an acknowledgement and a gravity of wrongdoing. There's also a power that is reinforcing and it's conquering that comes when you are unified in prayer with your spouse. In times of strain, acknowledging that is what is really going on is that our enemy is not each other, it's Satan. That can bring oneness back to a marriage. And in times of contentment and joy, simply humbly acknowledging that the sweetness of marriage is not your own doing, but a work of the Holy Spirit, that can be inspiring on one hand, and another, it can just be a breath of joy, a breath of protectedness, and cared forness to know that your Savior would give you the gift of your spouse and the gift of your marriage. I'll invite the band back up as I finish here. But marriages, we all know, they need work every day. You take imperfect man, imperfect woman, put them together, and expect perfect marriage. It's <laughs> plain logic aren't going to get you there. Relationships and marriages, they need to be made new every day. Prayer can usher in a freshness and, if needed, a new beginning. 
Scripture holds instruction and newness for all things, marriage included. Some of this may be new teaching. When Jesus was recruiting his disciples, he, refer, he referred to the newness and new teaching as new wine. But new wine is not intended for old wineskins. It is wasted on old and brittle wineskins. Old wineskins aren't kept fresh. They cannot flex and hold new wine. Let prayer bring a freshness to your marriage. Let prayer allow your marriage to receive the teachings of Scripture and allow new wine, new teaching to come into your marriage, into your relationship, and flow out of your commitment to your spouse and your commitment to Christ.